morning. I agree. Baptist Church, uh, we pray for you guys quite often. Uh, love uh, the relationship that we've got with you. I am deeply fond of your pastor. Uh, I think he's an excellent man and uh, very happy to um, be here with you. Um, I uh, am a big fan. Uh, I don't know if you are. But I'm a huge fan of uh, superhero comic book movies. Um, I think I'm a big fan because I was reading those comic books when I was a kid, um, before half the people in this congregation were born. And I, uh, those comic books were uh, sort of the hub of my existence at some point. Uh, later on, I began to uh, sort of realize, and, and this thought kind of gelled with me when I heard another speaker talk about this one time. One of the things that's appealing about those heroes is they're everything that we wish we could actually find in a person. are physically everything that you would ever want to be, but then they're also matched by this sort of resilient character. They are equal parts physically superior and morally equal. other stories like this because we don't have this political experience, do we? I, I, don't, I mean, I don't even have to, to, to lean on this particular. I, we can just go back from this point backwards, and you can find that we've never known in the United States a president with superpowers. A few of them seem to think they have them, had them, uh, and we certainly have never known one that's equal parts, physically superior and morally equitable. It's a remarkable idea that we hope in. One that he feels like the reason we've told each other these stories all throughout our lives is because there's something woven in the human DNA that longs for a king like that. A king that can do anything. A king whose heart is true, equitable, good, compassionate, just, and he has got the muscle to bring to the table to get things done. We don't know a king like that, but that's the king we hope for. Israel never knew a king like that. They hoped for that king. They were even promised that king. Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Be a king. He'll come. It'll be remarkable. But they never saw him. The quintessential king. All the ones that they thought would be the best eventually collapsed. And so it's interesting that when you get to the book of Ruth, and in the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew canon canonical order is a little bit different than the English order. The English order borrowed from 3rd century Septuagint and then sort of began collecting things in Genre or types of literature. But the Hebrew order has no real interest in chronology. It has no real interest really even in genre type. It kind of just drops things into this order where there's this narrative that moves. And so when you get to the book of Ruth, it's got this logical connection with judges, doesn't it? That's why we have it in our Bibles and uh, where judges is. But in the Hebrew order, the Jesus' Bible, those folks in the first century, all throughout the New Testament, the Bible that they held, had Ruth in the back, in the very back, in the writing section. In fact, just on the other side of Proverbs 31. You can't think of anything more scandalous than putting Ruth on the other side of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is the quintessential wise woman in Israel. And Moab did not have a great reputation with Israel. Judges chapter 11, Moab would not let them pass through, did not allow them safe passage. Deuteronomy, Moabites are one of the groups of people that can't even come into the temple. And so whoever put this together, which some of us think it might be Ezra, who finally kind of collected it all as we have it in the the first century. 
Whoever put it together put Ruth right beside Proverbs 31. You want a Proverbs 31 woman? Here's a Proverbs 31 woman. It's a Moabite. Scandalous, really. It was one of the beautiful scandals, one of the many beautiful scandals in the Old Testament. This is a remarkable book. We don't know who wrote it. The context historically is in Judges. It's one of the five megalotes that's read um, during the, the feasts and festivals, the Jewish holidays, still to this day. Megalote is just uh, big scrolls. It's uh, important literature, read. The historical settings marked by political and theological anarchy, as well as the absence of any promised covenant blessings. So you can think about the book of Ruth, that whoever is writing this wants you to read it on the backdrop of, cover, of, of theological and political confusion, theological and political instability, theological and political insecurity. That's what Ruth is supposed to be understood in. So Ruth is not a book to be read if you're just doing great and you have no political or theological or personal instabilities. Then Ruth might not make as much sense to you, might not generate as much hope for you. But here in this book lies the answer for loss. Lies the answer for this king that we long for. So let's read it. I'm going to read the entire book of Ruth to you. It's a small book. If we were in Deuteronomy, I promise I would not do that. <laughs> to you. Well, I might, actually. But, but, I, but then Jeremy would never ask me to come back. So, uh, but, well, Ruth is small enough that I can get away with. They still get lunch out of the deal. So, so, so uh, if, you're, if you've got one of those black Bibles in, in front of you, it's on page 222. 222. So go ahead and look at that real quick. I'm going to read it for us. Get us through it. And then we're going to go back and we're going to make a few observations about the book that will help shape us as the people of God. Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may become your, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I should say I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain, and she ate till she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and don't reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. Don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said the man's name was Boaz, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, Anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. 
At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, the woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay down on his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So he he held it out. She held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz spoke came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our world of Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. And Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from among the gate of the native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who built together, built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be known, renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar more to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you. By this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. And then women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Ovid. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse, Father David. It's a remarkable story. I'm a son. Now, my wife likes to watch, on occasion, the Hallmark Channel, which I don't find to be good stories. I find them to be banal and boring. I'm more attuned to things like the Bourne Trilogy, 
uh, where things blow up. That's a good story. Uh, and uh, though nothing blew up in this story, this is a quintessential romance. It really is. And one of the things that it highlights most significantly is that when you begin thinking about things like Torah obedience and, and, and thinking about things like the religious life or however people talk about it, people talk about this as if it's duty-bound. But when writers have the opportunity to... It took a story about romance. And I said, well, this is what this looks like. It's a remarkable thing. There's three particular themes that we'll look at. The first one is God's covenant kindness. God's covenant kindness. The loss and regaining of all the elements of covenant are right here in this book. At the beginning of the book, look what you don't have. Naomi does not have land. Elimelech has taken them from Israel into Moab. You can only imagine the devastating situation. We talked about earlier in the introduction how this book should be understood in the context of the time of the judges. Theological, political anarchy. This uh, this is supposed to be a time when Israel had occupied the land, but they didn't occupy the land. In fact, they were constantly being thrown uh, about in, in their own land by the Philistines, by the Moabites, by the Gideonites. And here, things had to be rough for an Israelite to run to Moab for security. But that's what they've got. No land. No kids. By the middle of the first chapter, you've got a dead husband and two dead sons. You get roughly five verses from Machlon, Kilion, and Elimelech, and they're done. They're gone. They're not part of the story anymore. This whole book is now from this point forward about Naomi and Ruth with a bit of Boaz sprinkled in. It's a really remarkable story. No seed. Listen listen to what Naomi says. said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. This is verse 10 of chapter 1. And and Naomi says, back to them in verse 11, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should have, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? I mean, the whole point is, you've got no future here with me. I've got no land. I've got no seed, no kids. And there's no blessing to the nations here. I'm a servant to the nations. I'm a leech off of Moab. Headed back home because I found out, hopefully, this is true, that there's bread back in Bethlehem. None of the stuff of the Abrahamic covenant, none of the stuff that they were promised, none of the stuff that was the program-setting stuff of the biblical story, None of it is present at the beginning, but all of it is present at the end. The Redeemer has secured land. All that belonged to Elimelech, now Naomi rests comfortably in. She, in fact, is touted as the mother, almost, of Obed. Look at at this. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He'll be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That's Obed. And Naomi sits the child on her lap and becomes his nurse. I don't even know how this would go in the Mooney family. Um, when I, um, we, I've got four kids. My wife and I have four kids. And uh, when Jonathan was born... Uh, there were some complications, and so he surgically had to uh, be removed uh, by C- via C-section. And um, I'd never been a dad before. I didn't know dad protocol. I didn't know any of this stuff, you know. So my wife wakes up from, uh, you know, the uh, anesthetic, <laughs> anesthesia, rather, and, and, uh, and she said, uh, where's Jonathan? I said, oh, yeah, my mom's got him. And, uh, and, and then I pulled out this stack of pictures, Polaroids. You remember the Polaroid cameras? You click once, and they, you know, and so I had, like, 
50 of them. So, and here he is with my friend from high school, Pat. And here he is. And I mean, I'm talking, everybody on the floor had seen this kid before my wife. And, and, and this, uh, so young fathers to be, uh, let me just tell you that that's the wrong thing to do. Just lucky I had any more kids at all. Uh, this is a wrong thing to do. Uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, not. This is not protocol. I cannot even imagine if my wife had woken up. I said, "Oh, by the way, my mom is celebrating the fact that she now has a child. The child you gave birth to. She's nursing him right now. She's 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 got him taken care of. Maybe you'll see him. Maybe you won't. I mean, that would have been you know one seriously violent pregnant woman." post-pregnant woman, very serious uh, issues. But right here, the writer gives us this. What does Naomi have? She's got land, she's got kids, and she is the blessing to the nations. Moab now is drawn in to the promise, and it sticks. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, Ruth is part of this remarkable multinational Sort of setting of God's covenant love. Another major theme is God's covenant kindness. God's covenant kindness. And this is remarkable in this book because it is preeminently practiced by people for one another. Chapter 1, yet again, in the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 8. Naomi says to her daughters, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. And you know the story, Ruth, I just read it to you. Orpah goes back home, but Ruth stays. Look at what Ruth says. This is as close <clears throat> to a conversion experience as you, as you can possibly find in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and there are gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Deeply, deeply attached by affections to Naomi. Ruth had nothing literally to gain by going with Naomi. She is driven by covenant love. And this love is highlighted throughout the rest of the book. Uh, for example, chapter 2. Um, look at um, Boaz. Boaz in verse 11. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and your mother and your native land came to a people you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, on whose wings you've come to take refuge. You've got this... Deep covenant love, even, even celebrated in chapter 4. Again, uh, what, how, how uh, Naomi is, or Ruth is described. Your daughter-in-law, who is more to you than seven sons. She is the quintessential daughter-in-law. Why? Well, because she loves you. She loves you deeply. She left all that she had because of you. God's covenant love is intrinsic to all of this. She cuts off her past with her Moabite heritage. She walks away from all things that would have defined her, everything that would have been secure for her. Because it was something profoundly compelling about Naomi and Naomi's God. She was driven by covenant love. Covenant love here also, uh, we could just bounce off of this. Covenant love can be identified as or characterized throughout this book. Number one, covenant love causes you to take risks for one another. Causes you to risk. Ruth risked public shame, possibly physical assault by coming home with Naomi. If you'll notice, I mean, that was actually a, a real concern for Naomi um, and, and Boaz. Boaz says to, to Ruth, stick with, in chapter 2, stick with my, uh, with my girls, uh, lest you be assaulted in another field. Uh, Naomi says the same thing. Um, Naomi, or Ruth going to Boaz in chapter 3 at, at, the, at the gleaning floor. This was a very serious act that she did. This is, the, uh, the Hebrew word here is, is not feet. Uh, oftentimes the English Bible um, sanitizes uh, things for English readers. This uh, would probably cover a lot of ground from feet up to your waist. 
So what she did was, uh, for American uh, Christians anyway, would have been tantamount to immorality. We would have thought she had done something horrible. But in this particular culture, what she did was say, I'd like to present myself to marry you. And he gets it. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth. Spread your wings over me. You just, Boaz just got through saying, may God spread his wings over you. He had no idea that he would be the wings that would be spread over Ruth. She says, spread your wings over me. What she means by that is, I've uncovered you. You cover back up, but with me included. I'm, I want to be your wife. Look at what he says. Verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. He, he says, this is better than what you've done for Naomi. I mean, there's a good chance that, that Boaz could have been closer to Naomi's age, really, than Ruth. And he, he is completely and utterly happy about this, uh, about this possible arrangement. He says, you've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men with the poor or rich. Don't fear, I'll do all that you ask. He commits himself right out of the gate to her. I will give myself to you as husband. And even if I'm not your husband, even the other redeemer redeems you, I promise you. In other words, I promise you, I will act like your husband. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I'll make sure this happens, whether it's with that redeemer or with me. Remarkable. But look, this risk was huge. Naomi, when she sends her, says, wait till he lies down. He, he eats and he drinks enough that his heart's merry. He's, he's, he's ready to lie down. All the men would have been there that had been working on the barley harvest. It's kind of end of the year kind of routine. I know it sounds almost like fraternity brotherish kind of thing, but it's, it's the kind of thing that you, you did in this kind of culture. And they would crash right there on the threshing floor. And so she says to Ruth, watch where he lies down. Wait till everybody's asleep. Then go to him. And he knows this, right? Look, look, at, uh, look at what he says um, uh, in uh, verse 13. Remain tonight in the morning. If you'll, if you'll redeem, that's good. But if he's not, then I'll redeem you. Sorry, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, and, um, oh, here it is in verse 14. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize the other. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. She would be, her reputation, everything would be thrashed. Covenant love causes Ruth to risk everything. Does covenant love cause you to risk things? Are you you driven by affection to put yourself at risk? Are you so concerned about saving face? You know what saving face is just a very kind way to talk about ourselves, when in all actuality what we're saying is that we don't love anyone or anything as much as we love us. But when we are driven by affection for other things, we will be willing to fail at those things. My friends who are startup business guys, they have no problem failing. In fact, I was uh, I was uh, giving these lectures in Helsinki uh, one time and. Uh, alongside of a guy uh, from um, uh, Google, and uh, he um, he had uh, it was it was one of these things where mostly college kids. After it was done, there's this huge line of people. It's <laughs> like two people are talking to me. Everybody else is talking to him because he's Google. And so, but they're all asking him the same thing. Hey, I'm I'm wanting to start up. What do I do? He said, Oh, he goes, Do you believe in the product? And they all would say, Yeah, I believe in it. He goes, Get out there and make all the mistakes. Fail as often as possible. He goes, it's the, it's the greatest thing you could possibly do. He, he told me later on, we were eating dinner together, he said, half of those kids won't ever do that. He said, because most people are way more in love with what they're perceived to be than in love with the thing that they claim they care about. I thought to myself, I'd be probably one of those kids when I was that age. Are you driven to risk everything? Because covenant love causes you to risk. Covenant love also causes you to obey. Boaz protects Ruth in his field, demonstrates uncommon generosity toward her. This is all rooted back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15, concerning the poor. If your brother becomes poor, you do whatever you have to do to ensure that he or she has what they need. Now, you don't have the same, but they always have what they need. Torah obedience is pictured all throughout Ruth 
as a beautiful thing driven by affection. Torah obedience is not pictured here in some duty-bound way, but in a way that, that causes be that they're causing other people to be happy. I was just having a conversation earlier today uh, with a, a young man. He was, he was asking me about why I would deny myself certain things at certain times when the Bible doesn't ask me to deny those things at all. I said, oh, it's easy. It makes me happy to, to take something from myself in order to bring joy to somebody else. That's not normal for me. That's, a, that's certainly a fruit of my conversion. In fact, if there's any fruit of my conversion that helps me at times when I doubt my own salvation and believe I'm saved, it's the fact that I'm kind to people because that's not something that's normal for me. Obedience is driven by love. You obey. I, I had a student ask me one time, how does your wife feel about you traveling? I travel a lot sometimes around the world about my wife. How does your wife feel about that? So she doesn't, she doesn't think about it at all. And they asked me, well, have you ever been tempted to be unfaithful to your wife? And I said, well, yeah. I'm a, I'm a university professor in Southern California, of course. Uh, that, 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 that comes up in my mind at times. It's, you know, and I asked the, the, the kid, I said, do you know why I'll probably never cheat on my wife? He goes, because she'll kill you? I said, no, that's, that is true. She would. But that's not why. I, I love my wife. I love the fact that my kids, my three daughters, still measure every guy they know by me. My son, who is rigorously independent, 24-year-old man, what I say still matters. There isn't anything worth that. My ethics are shaped and fashioned by my affections. This is the logic of being holy throughout the book of Leviticus, that great quiet time killer on the other side of uh, every New Year's resolution, right? As, I'm going to read the Bible through this year, and then you get hit in Leviticus about March, and you just tank, right? It happens every single year to you. But in Leviticus, holiness is this ethic that's driven by affection. Because of my attachment, I am sure. Here in the book of Ruth, Torah obedience is driven by affection. Don't tell me to leave you. I will die where you die. And she obeys. Boaz obeys. Offers generous generosity to Ruth and Naomi out of deep affection for Ruth. You'll notice that. I mean, the affection for Ruth comes even in the way he offers the other redeemer. He gives the redeemer this whole layout of the land. He goes, yeah, you know, this Elimelech, uh, he's got this big plot of land. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Naomi's back. Somebody's got to redeem it. Or he has a really nice plot of land. What do you say? If you, if you don't want it, I'll take it. But do you want it? Oh, yeah, I want it. I'd love that. And he goes, oh, well, then you've got it. And, oh. By the way... You also get Ruth the Moabite. He actually calls her that. Ruth the Moabite. When you get the land. So it's really not yours. It's a brilliant move by the writer. You say, look at it. You go, oh, I know what I'm looking at, right? The other guy wants the land. He doesn't care about Ruth. Boaz, he's smitten by Ruth. He couldn't care less about the land. He just wants Ruth. Covenant love drives you toward obedience. Covenant love drives your ethics. Drives everything about you. Also, covenant love is the identity marker of the people of God. Not race, not gender. This is such an important point, I think, now. I'm trying to see what kind of time I'm working with. When do you get done here? Great. 1230. It's a, a, the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the concept of, uh, of race has been brought to bear and brought to the forefront by um, uh, just the, 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 the remarkable sort of nonsensical uh, sort of public actions of current administration, as well as tons of white people who seem to believe that now is our time. I, I, I grew up in Alabama. My grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, my dad, um, I always tell people that part of my dad's teenage rebellion was that he became decent. Uh, and so he rejected the Klan and all things Klan. 
Uh, I was telling Jeremy, my dad integrated our church when I was a kid. All my black friends uh, that I played basketball with, he started bringing them to church. And this became this big problem. I remember the, the business meeting, sitting there listening with great curiosity. I was a little bit of a dim-witted kid. And so I remember turning to my friend Greg and saying, Hey, they keep on saying they should go to their church. Who are they talking about? And Greg looked at me and he goes, they're talking about us. I said, why are they talking about us? He said, not you. He goes, they're talking about and he, and they, me and Nathan and, and, and Ken. And, and I go, oh, you guys have a church? Uh, I, I, was compl- I, mean, I was completely out of the loop. It's because my dad had really been affected by the gospel. My dad, for my dad, the marker of a true Christian was love for brother. He didn't, didn't understand a white nationalist sort of Christianity. And we shouldn't either. We should not ever make these ideas. Right here, the book of Ruth itself is about a Moabite who is drawn in by the covenant love of God and whom God, by his own wisdom and providence, utilizes to bring about the great king. Not David. David was the down payment, but he certainly didn't turn out to be the great king. Now, it would be later on. Interestingly enough, Boaz lines up in the, um, the genealogy of Rahab. Rahab, who walked away from her nationality so that the wall could be torn down in Canaan, is now her son is bearing a child that will one day bear a child that will tear down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, according to Ephesians 2. He'll be the quintessential point of identity. And you get this all throughout the Old Testament. The book of Jonah, for example. Most people read Jonah completely wrong. They read Jonah with this pragmatic sense of, oh, this is what happens when you run away from God. Well, it doesn't really, does it? I mean, you've never been swallowed by a fish and carted around in the water. Is this a remarkable you know, kind of story? The story is about Jonah is, Jonah is an unmitigated racist. The story is about God's goodness to the nations regardless of Israel's bigotry. That's what the story's about. You just look at it. Jonah runs. He gets swallowed up by a fish. He prays this beautiful prayer, but none of it is, hey, I'm really sorry for running. He prays about God's goodness. The fish remarkably spits him out where he was supposed to go in the first place, which is, in my mind, one of the, the most amazing things about the story. Then Jonah carts through the town of Jericho, preaching the worst sermon in the history of sermons. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He and Naomi come from the same preaching school. If you noticed, Naomi was not trying to sell Yahweh. Go back to your own gods. Oh, man. Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. I mean, super dramatic, right? She nor Jonah are high on selling Yahweh at this point. Jonah just doesn't care. Even it says in chapter 4 why he ran. I knew you'd be kind to them. God's goodness, God's goodness was revolutionary in the Old Testament world. Race always equaled religion. Even in the first century, race equals religion until the son of David emerges. And now all of a sudden, race doesn't equal religion. The quintessential marker is not race, is not gender, is not social class. It's covenant love. Covenant love. Even the text that you read earlier today. What is the quintessential marker in 1 John? John will tell you that you are not a Christian if you do not love your brother. I always tell people that when I read that to them. I have to do that periodically being a theology professor. We bump into theology students who seem to forget that theology is supposed to be fueled to do something rather than the thing itself. And so... The, the Arminian receives 
nothing but absolute disdain. So I open up the Bible. John would look at you right now and say, you're a great Calvinist, but you're not a Christian. Do you love your brother? But he doesn't believe in pre. That's not what I ask you. I ask you, do you love your brother? That's what you should be asking. How do you feel about um, people in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria? Are you more tied to American troops there than to believers who are Syrian and Afghan? Because if you are, then you're a great American, but maybe not such a good Christian, if one at all. That's how unparalleled this love is. Naomi and Ruth's interaction in chapter 1 is just programmatic for this. Naomi is so much, means so much to Ruth, she's willing to leave everything she knows. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I can assure you, I can't do this in every church that I'm in, I can assure you, I know that your pastor here, when he's talking to you about Jesus, he is not saying, trade in this moral package for this moral package. He is saying, there's nothing you can do. You're bankrupt. Bankrupt of morality. Bankrupt of resources that make you appealing to God. God has come for you. Wrapped himself in flesh. Absorbed the wrath of the Father. So that you might be forgiven. He's come to rescue you. Unparalleled love. No one will love you better than Jesus. No one will ever love you more than Jesus. And when you're rescued by Jesus, you'll find yourself compelled towards those people who know Jesus. Regardless of their race, regardless of their background, regardless of what sins they struggle with, regardless of their political party, In fact, you'll begin to find these things to be petty annoyances and not things that are supposed to identify us. Supposed to be identified by our love for one another. And the responsibility that goes with that. This is real stuff. I was an atheist for most of my young adult life. Um, um, By young adult, I'm simply meaning from about 18 years old to about 24. I I was an atheist. And the reason was, is I thought that Christianity was basically like all other religions. I thought it was just simply exchanging one moral package for another. And at the end of the day, who's got the position to judge that? What I did not have in mind, and what I didn't understand until my own conversion experience, was that we were all in this together, all condemned. The book of Ruth is written at a historical time when there is no king. Last words of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Political instability, personal instability, theological instability, theological anarchy. In fact, it's the human experience that the book of Ruth fits so well into. But with this promise, the son of David has come. He's the Son of God. And He's here to rule and to reign. He's here to bring His kingdom. So let go of your little kingdoms. For those of you who can't help but confuse Christianity with being a Republican, for God's sake, let that go. You can't help but confuse it with your own race. Let it go. Or being an American, let it go. This is not what this is about. Jesus doesn't come in order to secure tiny kingdoms. He came to secure the kingdom that would end all kingdoms and be the king that we've always wanted. One that we've hoped for. Strong. True. Eternally. Passionate. Compassionate. Just equitable, devoted deeply to his bride, so much so that he gives himself on her behalf, makes it his greatest joy to purify her and attach her back to himself. Nobody loves you like this. Nobody loves us like this. Believer, 
Are you willing to be driven by covenant love? Because being driven by covenant love is not easy. Being driven by covenant love is the stuff of which risk is drawn. Why do you obey? Great question to ask yourself this week. Just a minute when you have this moment of silence. Why do I obey? Do I obey because I think I'm meriting favor with God? Do I obey because I believe God has loved me so deeply that I long to obey? Are my ethics shaped by my affections? All these things that Ruth teaches us. And do I hope, do I hope for a coming king? Do I pine away looking forward to the day that I look into the eyes of Christ, my Savior? Do I labor as if a king is coming? Do I labor and live and love like this king is coming? All these things make much of Christ and bring you great joy as well. Let me pray for us. Father, in the name of Christ, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and ask that you would draw them to yourself. Draw us all, Father, through covenant love. I pray that we would not overlook the absolute, eternal, death-shattering power of love. As they take the Lord's table tonight, as they're staring at the bread and the drink, that, Father, that they would remember that this is the measure of your love for them, that you would send Jesus. As they contemplate the fact that Jesus is alive, that this is the measure of your power to them. And, Father, as they go through life and as they testify to the goodness and the resilience and the eternal power of the gospel, that, Father God, you would encourage them with Ruth, encourage them to be shaped by love, shaped by kindness, and driven by hope for the coming King. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.